0: And Nomatibana Machoba, the MD of Terebinth Capital. Nomatibana, good evening and welcome.
1: Thank you. Good evening.
0: Thank you so much for taking time out to join us. Um, I thought maybe we could start off out, um, I guess, uh, in the um, financial services sector. Uh, APSA put out uh, a uh, trading update earlier on today, giving some guidance as to how they've performed over the last five months. What did you make of that? And I guess uh, what... uh, drove uh, some of uh, the improvements in those numbers and what might have not uh, improved as much. Part of last year. Mm. Are they making provision for much higher credit losses? And wh- what do you make of some of the other, I guess, um, sort of non-interest uh, forms of income, uh, be it uh, what they've made by way of uh, you know, life insurance, um, fee income and so on?
1: Nineteen. Mm. So those numbers, those non-interest uh, growth numbers, did improve primarily at the back of life insurance. So just thinking up looking at it in terms of how the market took it. I mean, the share price is up a circa two point seven percent when the trading update did come out.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess I mean, my interest, No uh, Matiwana, in that number is, is largely because I think a lot of us in the general public tend to think that banks. Uh, like APSA and many others, primarily make a lot of their money from the difference between what it is that they lend and how much they pay over to depositors. Uh, but it does seem that I guess you know, from a revenue perspective, much more diversified picture than just uh, that strong reliance on interest-related incomes.
1: That's that's. Are definitely the case. In this case, in this instance, uh, given that we are in a rising interest rate environment, mm. there's an additional, um, from a net interest income perspective, they are expecting that to be higher. So they will be benefiting, all banks throughout the industry will be sure. benefiting because of that positive net interest income because of a rising interest rate environment. And then obviously from the non-interest um, component around insurance and around um, transactions um, uh, uh, and fee commission that they're earning, they're Mm. Uh, there's a positive to that,
0: too. Yeah. We have seen over the last few years or so, I guess, in terms of how they've operated, uh, much less of a reliance on an expansive store footprint or sort of, uh, you know, in-person interface uh, and strong investments, I guess, in in omni-channels, digital channels and so on. Um, any, any signals insofar as, you know, what um, uh, that might look like in uh, the subsequent numbers?
1: You know, they didn't provide much uh, input in Mm. those um, in in terms of those type of non fee or non-interest income growth numbers in this trading update. Uh, But I can just think that um, given that most of the um, transaction is happening online, that's an area that will definitely be a growth uh, area. And besides, physical um, assets or physical property does cost. So if you think of a branch, so them investing in the more online uh, systems will be be positive from uh, improving operating expenses.
0: Mm. Now, Matibana, hold the line there for me for a second while we take a quick spot. Break. When we come back, uh, I want us to take a look at that rail workers strikeout in the UK. It's uh, brought uh, that particular economy to a standstill. And uh, I think the government is trying to look for ways there to minimize those disruptions. And we'll also take a look at Transnet, uh, which seems to be going out into the market once again to um, procure locomotives. I'm not sure they've received all of their last order, but we'll take a look at that after this brief break. And uh, if you just joined us, we just took a look at some company news coming through from uh, APSA. They're giving an update in a, tra- in a trading uh, statement uh, for the five months ending 31 May uh, 2022. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, a set of numbers there uh, that is showing somewhat some uh, recovery and also uh, much higher expectations insofar as net interest incomes are concerned uh, for that particular banking group. Uh, but Nomati uh, I want us to take a look just briefly at uh, Transnet, and um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, many, an investor, in particular those in the traditional sectors of the economy, a traditional exporting sectors of the economy, have lamented the role that uh, inefficiencies out at uh, the um, freight rail and port operator have uh, led to. And uh, it seems part of Transnet's solution is not only, I guess, sorting out some of the issues, putting out the fires, but potentially... Uh, saying here that they're going to go out into the market and uh, get more by way of locos to uh, build their capacity, expand it, and uh, hopefully turn around what has become quite uh, the situation here. Mm,
1: that's, uh, that's correct. Um, I mean, we've seen in April um, how the state owned uh, company uh, issued uh, to call exporters a letter terminating long term agreement uh, based on a force majeure. So this is a bid for them to address some of those concerns um, um, and mostly to to boost um, logistics performance uh, within the mining sector. So this is an important one. um, And at the mining in Daba, a couple of the Minerals Council of South Africa also urged government to step in um, because it's starting to cost the industry quite a lot of money.
0: Mm, mm. And, I mean, we know, I think just shy of about, what, 10 10 years ago, mm. um, Transnet then had something called a market demand strategy. They, they made some forecasts on, you know, what demand in those underlying exporting sectors uh, might be, agriculture, you know, uh, um, and then, of course, the minerals sector. Um, and on the basis of that said, we're going to go out into the market and we're going to buy a 1,064 trains. Um, and I think the contracts ended up going to... Uh, the likes of uh, China North Rail, China South Rail, with General Electric, Alstom, uh, unless I'm mixing Alstom up with the Prasa one. But uh, a few of these international players ended up getting those contracts. But we know that those, yeah, also had a very checkered uh, history, which uh, uh, we understand is uh, spelt out in a lot of detail in the Zondo Commission's report. Mm. No, definitely that's, a, that's definitely
1: the case. I mean, and that's why
0: um, in this... Makes one wonder, though. Um, I guess you know. So fine, the commitment that there'll be proper governance and hopefully there will be a lot more transparency in so far as you know the entire process, the planning, the specs, and the evaluation, and so on. Um, but I'm also quite interested, I guess, in whether or not you know do do you buy the trains? Do you fix the the rail lines first, and just the sequencing of this particular sort of uh, buying of these trains. Uh, so that's the one concern. But the other one is whether or not in the last order we got uh, all of the trains that we were supposed to receive.
1: Okay. It's actually it's a it's an interesting one, exactly that, because um, uh, the CEO has been vocal about the issues um, on the actual infrastructure. She's um, been vocal about vandalism that's happened on the infrastructure mm-hmm. and also the most recent cyber attacks. So it's quite interesting that they are aiming for the procurement of the locomotives before actually fixing the, um, the infrastructure. But I do recall in one of the trading statements they did mention that they are working hard on the security, firstly around the infrastructure, that therefore fixing some of the vandalism uh, issues there. Um, so it's it's it's, it's uh, the way I see it now. The focus is primarily in uh, securing the current infrastructure, not so much improving and bringing mm.
0: through locomotives. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I mean, there's also questions of infrastructure sharing as well. We understand, I mean, the passenger uh, and the freight, you know, rail services share the same base of infrastructure. Um, mm. And I often, I guess, seldom hear from the other side, on the passenger side, to say, you know, what are we going to put in the kitty or what are we going to be doing, you know, to make sure that we have a secure, reliable, um, you know, and I guess well- repaired and well-maintained a rail infrastructure, even before we get to the trains. Maybe maybe then just another element, I guess, to to this procurement story. I recall a big part of the debates at the time of that procurement process was, you know, issues around local content, um, partnerships with local players and suppliers. um, And it seems to me that, uh, I guess, with where we are now, um, you know, what would you make of the capability that might have been built or not built in that process and how that might advantage or disadvantage that process. Now, you probably don't want to be giving all the money away to you know, an international OEM when ideally some of the components and some of the critical parts of it could be made here.
1: Mm. So, I mean, we've seen process successfully uh, or at least starting to roll out locomotives on the passenger side um, with a a partnership with an international company where they are being assembled locally. So I I guess. So that is a start. Um, I mean. What we've seen right now is a commitment to actually go out to tender next month. So what the market will definitely be watching is if there's any going, if, if there will be any local involvement, given. That prasa has successfully done it on the other side, where the locomotives are being assembled locally, I understand it's not hundred percent manufacturing, but it's a start
0: mm-hmm. no definitely of course I mean you have to start somewhere I guess with uh, right. assembly and mm-hmm. potentially you know uh, work your way into. The more complex parts of manufacturing components for for these kinds of things. So, yeah, one we're going to be watching quite closely there, and I guess because the stakes are so high. I mean, many of the industries of you, as you've said, in the case of mining there, and even those in agriculture lamenting at the difficulties that they've been confronted with uh, with the challenges and the rail and port backlogs out at Transnet. Let's stay let's stay in the rail sector and head out to the United Kingdom. Uh, rail workers on strike in the U in the UK, and I think many are expecting. Uh, because of rising food and energy prices and uh, the massive pressures on many households, uh, something that many South Africans uh, will relate to, Uh, an anticipation that this might be the summer of massive industrial unrest and uh, the summer of discontent.
1: This is Britain's biggest rail strike in 30 years um, that they're seeing today, and um, it's one where both the unions and the government are not willing or are willing to, to to play it out because the unions want those salary increases, but the government is also pushing back against it. And it's um, it's uh, it's interesting because I mean, UK is known, especially with the previous uh, with the, uh, P, the 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 previous prime minister in 1970s, being known for breaking the back of um, of unions, um, it's very important. This for them is—it's mm. almost like a historical, from a government perspective, that they cannot give in to the unions. But otherwise, from the other side, you have uh, the consumer who's faced with um, inflation that's approaching double digits in mm. the UK. Um, and and so so it's a very tough uh, uh, environment uh, for both the government and the unions.
0: Yeah, I, I saw the Chancellor of the—I don't know what they pronounce it as—and. Uh, the Council of the Exchequer, I think that's what they call it, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, a few months ago, um, you know, saying, look, they're mulling over how they can mitigate the the harmful impact of this cost of living increase on many households in the United Kingdom. Um, It does seem, though, that I guess with this strike in the rail sector and potential strikes in other sectors that are anticipated, that that might be a much more urgent undertaking than when he was saying it a few months ago
1: um i would i would say so I would say now, mm. but then it will make its way into inflation expectations for the country in the long term. So I can I understand the need to be to be urgent in um, addressing the inflation problem in the UK, from the unions and union and labour perspective, but yeah. from the government and monetary policy perspective, it's a balancing act to ensure that uh, giving in on these high demands does not make its way into inflation expectations over mm. the longer term.
0: Well, I guess that's the fear that uh, even many here in South Africa have, that uh, a lot of the mm. externally driven supply challenges that have led to this mm. price uh, might lead to second and third round what are called price wage effects. So if I mm. see prices are going up, I go and knock on the doors of my bosses here at the SABC and say, look guys, I need a bit more money. Uh, and yesterday we, we spoke to workers in the public service out in Zimbabwe who were saying, look, they they downing tools in that part of the world because the wages they earn or what they expect to be earning is not commensurate with um, uh, what it has been offered and what might uh, allow them to survive. What happens if this becomes a generalized state of play, where wage demands across the next 18 to 24 months or so, depending on how long this conflict lasts for and even the decisions you know, of some o- OPEC players, um, if this lasts for... I guess the medium term, what are the implications of seeing a generalized tendency for people to expect that because inflation will go up, um, then wage demands also move in tandem? And uh, what's the outcome of that? Mm.
1: So, so, so um, this is where the credibility of the uh, central credibility of the reserve bank becomes mm. important. So where the Reserve Bank has been um, um, is credible in keeping inflation over the medium to long term within a defined, whether it's a defined uh, inflation targeting band or a specific level, uh, it means that there's a less risk of the high inflation that we're seeing right now makes its way into inflation expectations. So the Reserve Bank languaging becomes very, very important. So we're seeing, for instance, the the, the 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 Reserve Bank is not being hawkish for the sake of being hawkish or sounding hawkish because they want to be hawkish, but they need to to demonstrate to the market that they're taking inflation seriously. Mm. So and that is important, obviously, to ensure that the currently the high inflation we're seeing right now, excuse me, does not make its its way into inflation expectations because then it becomes a more structural issue whereby it makes its way into core inflation and then we have that spiral effect of high inflation.
0: Mm, mm. Then maybe a last one, just as we wrap up. uh, CELSI, and uh, I guess some of the context might be helpful for some of our listeners. Uh, Blue Label Telecoms, one of their biggest investors, um, certainly had a bit of a headache uh, with uh, uh, this one and they've even written down the value of their investment Uh, you know, in Celsi down to zero. It's been on a tough uh, wicket. And uh, yeah, what do you make of, I guess, this plan now to recapitalize it? And of course, many creditors coming, and note holders um, coming to the party, but it seems not enough of them because the meetings can't co rate. And on the basis Mm -hmm. of that, that has stalled and delayed Uh, the plans uh, of uh, Celsi to recapitalize itself. I heard people talk about a rights issue at some stage. Is that still on the cards? Mm.
1: so therefore this restructuring of the debt is important for this company to survive so the rightfully said that um, so there was supposed to be a noteholder meeting today um, which was uh, sus- uh, subsequently suspended by two uh, weeks because one of the major debt holders did not submit um, the um, the uh, what do you call it um, a- the necessary instructions for them to participate in the meeting on time. So, therefore, it meant that the meeting today, in order to vote, um, did not have the necessary quorum. Mm. But the interesting thing is that, obviously, uh, it means that in the next meeting, um, in in line with the Companies Act, the uh, quorum is required has been reduced. So therefore, there's a higher chance that that in second meeting, in that meeting, they will get the uh, note holder approval. It's quite a big haircut that they are asking for.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, they're asking uh, note holders to take 20 cents for every one rand of debt. Um, but it's one of those where um, it's either the state is restructured or otherwise this this company cannot survive.
0: Let's maybe just think briefly um, about the market this company operates in. I mean, I was looking at the numbers of Telcom the other day and uh, they had suspended dividends for the last while trying to bolster their kitty. It's um, spectrum time, massive amounts of investment. But we know these guys, a few years ago, sold off a lot of their masks and networks, got into some third-party arrangements with other telcos um, so that their, I guess, balance sheet wouldn't be as heavy. Um, What is the implication of a CELSI that is not capitalized sufficiently in this moment and its ability to compete in the telecoms market?
1: Um, I guess it's around that infrastructure. It's firstly Mm. having the adequate capital to ensure that they can uh, carry on um, uh, maintaining the current uh, infrastructure is, is important for their survival. Yeah.
0: No, Matibana? Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Once again, welcome to Metro FM Talk and look forward uh, to chatting to you further. Thank you. Thank you
1: so much.